0: Here's your host, Sakar Cowley.
1: Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Scott Price of uh, with Bonvolo Real Estate Investments. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hey, thank you, Sakar, and happy to be here. Thank you, thank you for being on the show. Uh, Scott is one of a very intelligent investors, uh, who, as I call him, uh, Took a lot of chances uh, throughout his life. Took uh, took care of a lot of opportunities. Got into single family, multifamily, retail, land, medical buildings. Boy, the list goes on and on. Uh, Scott, along with his wife Karen, uh, they man they manage a large portfolio in Washington State, east and uh, west of it. Uh, welcome to the sh- uh, show, Scott. Uh, give us an idea of uh, you know how you got started, uh, how everything came about for you. Sure, sure, going going way back I, I researched
2: how people in the world made money and what I mean by that is you know how people developed significant income and significant net worth and and there are always you know the the few people in the world who are, are famous for making money for some random ideas but uh, one thing I noticed that was consistent is even though they might not be household names uh, there was a consistent number of people who made significant wealth off of real estate and that really stuck with me me. Mm-hmm. And so just started the path of educating myself and, uh, and seeing what it took to get started in real estate and uh, and launch from there. Right, right. Awesome. Awesome.
1: And, and you're absolutely right, Scott, uh, Scott, there is that there are just so many millionaires, a large part of their uh, wealth is housed within real estate, maybe different sectors within it. But Always, you know, let's say if someone's making money through their industry, their business or technology and things like that. But real estate plays such a large role into their portfolio of things that uh, and it cannot be ignored. The benefits and things like that cannot be ignored. Um, so how, how did you get started there, uh, Scott? Like I know you started with single family uh, and things like that. What was your first investment like?
2: Sure. Well, my my first investment was what I would call a learning experience. And (laughs) what I mean by that was, I I actually bought a condo right out of college that I was going to live in. And then a couple years later, I moved into a house and I kept the condo. So that was my first rental property. Mm -hmm. And uh, I managed it myself. And I uh, had a great experience the first year, great tenants. They moved out. Had another set of tenants didn't work out so good. They were, not a, they were not good people to work with. And it was such a bad experience for me. I just wasn't used to it. I wasn't accustomed to dealing with that and dealing with people who might lie and <laughs> make up reasons for why the rent isn't coming in and things like that. Sure. that I, uh, I sold it. Actually, I said, oh, this isn't for me. And I got into stocks and day trading and all this kind of stuff. And then, but real estate kept drawing me back that it made sense. It was the the way to to be able to grow. It's understandable. Unlike something like stocks, which you really have no control over sure. uh, you can control it. You, and there's a, there's, if you put a lot of time, effort and knowledge into it, especially to get started, it's mm-hmm. something that can snowball over time. And sure. if, you, if you ride the inflation train and ride the time machine of, you know, how, how wealth can just compound over time, then, uh, then real estate can be a very understandable way to to develop net worth so i got back into it even after that and the, the the main learning for me was in those kind of cases especially for residential that i i now have a model where i outsource my property management to whoever is the best local property management company and um, when i have triple net properties uh, that are commercial i'll manage those myself because they're so easy but sure. but uh, if it's residential even if it's nearby just for my model it's fine if other people want to manage it themselves mm-hmm. but for my model i i actually you know use other property managers so anyhow i i learned from that that experience i wanted i i knew my one mistake was I, it would help me to have a property manager mm-hmm. and then i i actually got to the point of saying okay well how am i going to immerse myself in this world and what i did was i i said well best way to do it is go full time and make it my income. And I I couldn't make my income off of an investment because I didn't have any. So I went into real estate brokerage and, uh, but just kind of regular stuff, residential sales, things Mm -hmm. like that. But I was able to immerse myself in the world of real estate. And uh, I did that for about four years. Uh, And most of the time though, I was always focused on investing, even though my income that was paying my bills was through commissions, you know, through, through I sales I and uh, I stuck with it long enough to get what I needed out of it. And then I, then I jumped back into the, the tech world uh, cause I, I, I didn't want to be working on commission. I wanted to be growing my. I wanted to be growing my portfolio as an sure. investor, yeah. and I've kept my. I've kept my broker's license ever since. Although I currently don't directly represent clients, I actually frequently work through other brokers, and uh, other brokers will bring me their deals, and I'm just their client. I just happen to have a broker's license as well.
1: Nice.
2: And, yeah, and then uh, then I just started uh, jumping in. I I my first deal was a deal that was related to my own home. And I did an interesting development deal on it where I basically doubled its value by working with some neighbors and, and, uh, and cooperating on something that literally doubled its value quickly. Uh, And I took the money from that first deal, if you want to call it that, which again was actually my first home and, and actually took a step backwards in terms of home. In other words, instead of, Rolling it up into a fancy home, I, I took the delay, the delayed gratification route, and I said, okay, well I'm gonna I'm gonna get a fancy home later, and uh, for right now I'm gonna I'm gonna start investing. So I got just an average home that was actually a step down from my prior one, but I I threw the, all the money the uh, that I made on that first deal into a 29 unit apartment complex. So I jumped in pretty quick. I learned a lot of things. I still have that property. Uh, I don't know if I would have bought it. At knowing what I know now, but at the same time, I, I, I got I paid my tuition, so to speak, mm-hmm. and uh, by my owning it, and uh, then that just started uh, started the ball rolling. I for the past I'd say 14 years, I've been progressively rolling my. Profits forward, so my my full-time job, I'm now a full-time real estate investor, but for most of that time, I was also working in tech, and I would actually roll my profits forward, all my income from the real estate forward, look for opportunities to leverage, do cash out refis, use solo 401ks, all that kind of stuff, whatever I could to build my portfolio and make it bigger and bigger and snowball.
1: Awesome. Awesome. I think your path uh, and my path are so similar that working in technology and things like that and, you know, always reinvesting your profits into your own portfolio and growing it bigger and better. That's exactly the path I took. And from your story as well, Scott, I think what's evident also is that you're always, you know, connected with the market. Uh, The part that you shared where you had the uh, brokerage role uh, in real estate also is very important where I think you're always connecting with different brokers, networking and things like that. You're always connected to the market so that when the deals are hitting the market, or in fact, even if someone is having a pocket listing, as we call it, they will bring it to you knowing, uh, hey, Scott, because... They they know that you purchase uh, investment properties. So if something is coming across their desk, even I mean for them it's a win-win that you can buy right off uh, right off the table rather than uh, for them to go pre- create a, all this you know beautiful investment packages and you know do all the showings and things like that. There's nothing like you know having a ready buyer that they know that they they know that he he will purchase the, the, these. Would you agree?
2: Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting you say that because that literally happened two weeks ago. I'm, oh. they, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I currently have uh, a property under contract, a small uh, multifamily, a 10 unit, mm. and it came uh, to me from a broker. Uh, they were going to list it. But they, they uh, knew me. I'd worked with them several times before, knew I, I was a person of my word. I delivered. I, uh-huh. I didn't renegotiate after making a deal, all that kind of stuff. They said, you know, hey, uh, you can have first crack at it before this. And uh, he told me what the price was, what the seller wanted. Mm-hmm. And I came in, made it really easy for him. And we're moving ahead on it right now before it ever hit, hit the market. So that's awesome that's right awesome that's just so coincidental right <laughs> yeah and and actually the other the, the other property i'm working on right now which we're still somewhat in negotiations because there's a bank involved but as far as with the seller we've already agreed and that's on a retail strip center and that one was completely off market but it was through a broker and uh, but they were having issues with making their payments and things like that and they were kind of looking for a way out mm-hmm. and uh, so this broker came to me the same same kind of thing but but again they they knew my track record it wasn't sure. it wasn't just that they're randomly you know randomly dialing people they because sure, they, sure. they knew I could perform
1: sure and one big piece from experience that we all know Scott into this is that we have those lender relationships that are so key to making these things happen is that lenders will bend over their back to do some creative financing and make the deal work for you, knowing your track record. I mean, you know, from my prior experience into multifamily and a lot of other deals, uh, we've created some uh, very creative structures where, you know, we are uh, coming down with a lower down payment upfront, but through, uh, you know, creative NOI uh, strategies, we are, basically paying a whole lot more towards our loan proceeds that's getting back to equity and things like that. So the, those are the creative uh, structures that you can come up with once you have a lender that believes in your track record. Would you agree, Scott, there? Absolutely. And uh, yeah, that's
2: that's a good point. That's a really important other side to the equation, because uh, once you get the deal, you got to finance it or, or whatever you're going to do. Right. right, and, right. Uh, and that's so important. Also, on your on your cash on cash return as well as your long term return. If you can make it creative, if you can maximize your leverage, if that's appropriate, and uh, if you have something you need a little flexibility on, say some rehab or construction or uh, you know interest only for a little bit or or whatever you know that that uh, when you have the track record and have the relationship, it. The what's advertised on the website is not necessarily the only option that is really out there.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And and to add to that, Scott, is that once you uh, work with local banks or uh, some of the portfolio banks, as we call it, I think the world of financing is so much open that uh, it's it's very interesting that uh, lenders understand that env- investors are such key clients to them that they are always looking for very w- worthy investors who have a g- very good experience and track record that they know that if they make these uh, loans, there are prudent investors like you and I where they know that they can uh, rely on them, uh, on the operators like us, and they know for sure that their returns will be guaranteed and more importantly, the investor will do the right things at every point of the way. Uh, Would that be a correct statement Scott there? Absolutely,
2: and what it boils down to is A bank or a credit union is generally a very conservative organization, and essentially they're looking for ways that they can protect themselves, which is fair. They're putting a lot of money into it. And they're looking a way to protect their principal to start and then to protect their hopefully their income stream after that, just like a passive investor in a syndication in some ways. But the the difference is that they have some, uh, they have several different levers that they can pull to say, okay, what, where do we think there's risk and where do we think there isn't risk and what they, where can they give and take? And if part of the risk of the, the the sponsor or the manager or the you know the owner the person who's buying the deal and getting the financing if they if that reduces risk then they they can be willing to take a little bit more risk in some other areas to to counterbalance that absolutely and, absolutely yeah, part of the benefits of having a good track record
1: right right and, and as you said earlier scott about the stock market versus you know real estate and things like that right so leverage for example is such a huge part of uh, you know uh, real estate that you can own a whole lot more that as we all know like viewers and uh, you know listeners of the podcast who may be listening that you can pay maybe 15 20 25 percent uh, down and still own a bigger asset uh, as we all know which is basically not possible in a stock market world and, mm-hmm. and to come back to your uh, you know the the financing piece that we were speaking about that the same real estate becomes uh, such a good collateral that these banks have a good appetite that yes we want to lend we know the operator is good. We know the asset very well. Here's here's the money, and, and that's where your experience and your track record comes in. That uh, the more deals you do, the, you know, the easier it gets, basically.
2: Yeah, and the, and and of course not only the more deals but the more successful deals. Which I know is what you meant, but, but you know, I, in other words, if you can show that track record of, you know, hey, had this deal and this deal and this deal and this deal, and every single one of them is doing well or sold off at a profit or whatever. Absolutely. And also to your point about how you you know, the power of leverage, the the, the biggest aspect is that when you put your twenty percent down, that's great, but you're, when if there's appreciation, if there isn't always appreciation, but if there is appreciation, sure. certainly has been a lot of appreciation recently. But sure. uh, if there is appreciation, it's not only twenty percent; it's on the hundred percent. So uh, you know that, that appreciation is is multiplied in many ways. So, we like that. <laughs> we like
1: that. <laughs> yeah. So that brings into buy and hold uh, here, uh, Scott, is that. Um, Why you like buy and hold strategy? Why not maybe perhaps flips or, you know, wholesaling and things like that? I know you are a big fan of uh, buying and holding it for the long term for cash flow and things like that. Uh, Why is that your strategy only? Sure. So I've done. I have done a couple flips, but
2: it was mostly just opportunistic, and sure. it was more that the uh, the property would not have made sense as a rental, but it made sense as a flip. Nonetheless, sure. exactly what you said. I'm a buy and hold guy, and uh, and they were just I just kind of tried it for fun, actually, for a, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way. Mm-hmm but uh, buy and hold to me it's a longer team, it's a longer term game uh, you you don't get that that rush of a $30,000 profit on a on a little home that you, you sold you know right off the bat mm-hmm. but at the same time i'm i'm in the process i'm still i still consider myself to be in the process of building scale to sure. build repeatable consistent income that I can rely on and that I can rely on other people, meaning property managers, contractors, attorneys, all the people I work with on my team mm-hmm. to, be, to help me develop that income and that net worth. Whereas with flipping, now some people have very large flipping operations and they've essentially created a business and they're, they're also leveraging other people, I, I get that. Sure. But at the same time, it's more of a job and not that job is bad or anything like that but you're you're getting paid more directly for your time in in flipping as a a generalization you're you're getting you know it's you put time in a lot of people would do it swing the hammers themselves or at least not being it themselves things like that and it's not scalable it's it's you know it's why i have property managers because If I was out there taking care of all the residential properties I have myself and mm-hmm. talking to the tenants directly, I'd have I'd have a limit on the number of properties I would be able to own purely based on time. Not, yeah. not based on capability or anything like that, but sure. purely based on time. And uh, and it's it's a similar thing where yes, I'm willing to do the delayed gratification where when I first buy a property, maybe I'm only making a hundred dollars a door a month or something like that. And hundred dollars, you know, you buy yourself a 10 unit and you get a hundred, if you get a hundred dollars nowadays, it can be more than that in some markets, but you know, let's say you make 50 bucks a door, you know, in a nicer market and uh, to start, but in 10 years, you're, 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 you're riding the inflation train, you're, I think you've paid down the, 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 the mortgage, all this kind of stuff. And, and when you start adding one on top of the other, then those hundreds turns into thousands, and thousands turns into 10,000. So,
1: and they just and it just it just snowballs. Couldn't so, agree more. Couldn't agree more yeah. there, Scott. I mean, uh, I'm in a similar boat where you know owning a couple of hundred rentals between you know single family, multi-family things like that. That's exactly how we stacked up. And as you rightfully described that you know, the more units you do, the better job you get at it. And you want to be in that realm of passivity, as I call it, is that the more you do it, you want that consistent, reliable income, as you rightfully said, there is that a little vacancy later on doesn't rock the boat. It's really that consistency. I mean, for that matter, uh, as we all know, that what if Flipper might be getting profit on one deal doing months of work, we probably make that money just in, in a regular monthly cash flow without even turning uh, any livers right now. Would you agree?
2: Yeah, exactly, and and that's not that's not on day one, and that's the difference, you sure, know, uh, Absolutely, especially if you're kind of, you know, building yourself up, you know, meaning you're rolling your profits forward. But, sure. you know, on day one, or let's say day 90 maybe, or day 180 or whatever sure, for sure, Flipper, sure. They get that rush, you know. They get that that big paycheck, but
1: then they don't have anything else coming in, and then they gotta start all over again. <laughs> right, right, right. You, you you become a deal hunter, and as you rightfully said, that it it just pretty much becomes a job. Whereas with buy and hold strategy, the more you do it, I mean, you know, the lesser you are doing on an ongoing basis as far as deal flow. And we do have to manage the property management aspects of things. And so there are some considerations towards that. But usually if you have bought good cash flowing rentals and you manage them, even the property management aspects Mm -hmm. tend to uh, you know, lessen out over time because, you know, the property is mature. You tend to have good paying residents that are, you know, uh, also a reflection of a good property management that you have. And you basically your batting averages improve is what I'm getting at. And, you know, that's kind of the mantra of that uh, to have, you know, greater cash flow. So uh, here, Scott, I know you are an intentional guy for uh, buy and hold and doing real estate investments. Uh, May I ask, like, how did that inspiration come about, uh, that being intentional, having that vision that you develop, how did that come about?
2: sure yeah well building on the the earlier idea that i mentioned of real estate seemed to be a good way of developing both continuous past you know well semi-passive it's not ever really passive as an owner but you know not not swinging a hammer kind of income sure. and uh and then also uh, net worth i then to answer your question i then started looking at ways of okay how can i apply this to my life and some of the some of the best advice that i've ever received was very simple but it it, it was very at least to me it was very meaningful and it was to take uh, what's called a deathbed perspective Mm -hmm. and what that means is basically to imagine myself on a deathbed sometime in the distant future and to look back and say what is it that i wish i had done in life what is it that was really important and valuable that i did do and what is it that at at this real point right now and between now and the deathbed time that is the gap in other words what is it that i still want to do what are the big things sure. that are important to me what it what will i look back on in all my life with a smile on my face instead sure. of regret in my mind you know and So I started thinking about it very uh, specifically of how to do that. And one of the things that I did was I, I, I looked at the way that some people give a big picture view and I created what's called a vision board and I did it with Mm -hmm. my wife and we did that uh, just before we started actually getting back active into uh into real estate investing that was about 15 years ago or so and in our case there are different ones uh that are are done in different ways but the way we did it was literally have this this big sheet of of thick paper Mm -hmm. and we we took pictures that represented things that were important to us and we 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 compartmentalize them or or categorize would probably be a better word into different sections on the board. And we hung that in our office every day. It was right in front of us and Mm -hmm. it was a reminder. I I personally like the the visual approach because you can see it and it's a little more uh, visceral. You can, uh, it has a little more feeling to it than just looking at words, you know, that just list a bunch of goals or something like that and so we, we hung that and then started to think about okay what are the things we need to do to achieve that vision that is mm-hmm. on that board with every picture there representing something and it had to do around family around uh, around where we wanted to live around the house we wanted around the, the hobbies we had around where we wanted to travel around you know all this kinds of stuff and it's all it was all there on the board and so we still have that board we've actually updated I see I see and- Sorry. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. And and then the the important thing though is to make it something that is tangible on a daily basis mm-hmm. and not just a poster that you start forgetting about. Mm-hmm. So what we've done and and I would say depending upon how busy we are, you know, we're we're I wouldn't say we're uh, we're 100 on doing it every day, but we are mm-hmm. very consistent about what I'm about sure, to share. Sure is I actually created a form, basically a one page sheet of paper that uh, that has, that then puts it into words, goals, mm-hmm. and the main goals and, uh, and then some sub goals under them. And then it says, and then there's a column that says, what am I going to do today for that goal? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I agreed myself. And there are three small columns on the right and it, and it says, uh, and it's basically, it says no partial and yes. And that means, no, I didn't do what I said I was going to do that day. Mm-hmm. Partial means I did a little bit, but not completely. And then yes means I did it and I don't do every single goal, every single day, that's certainly not the case. And you know, there are blanks on that sheet of paper every day intentionally, you know, I don't work on every goal every day. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a very specific reminder of what's important to me and making sure that I'm making active progress on everything. And then also my wife and I have a weekly meeting, that's on a daily basis. And that, that ties back to a weekly Monday morning meeting where we both get together and we plot out our week and so we have kind of like a a little higher level and uh, plot out our week and and again it all relates back to goals as well as what's going on so and that 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 we found that you know life will life will will pull you around everything from bills to what other people want is important so always making time for what you're you know you want to be important a year from now will pay big dividends. It might not seem like you're making big progress today, but if you make little progress on your big goals every day or every week, then at the end of the year and two years, oh my gosh, wow, mm-hmm. you've actually done things that were really important that if you hadn't made those baby steps at first, you wouldn't even you know be there in a couple of years.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for such a detailed answer. Uh, there are several things to unpack from that, Scott, is that you listed your vision goals, starting with pictures of all your wishes, wants, and things like that. Uh, you worked collaboratively with your wife to come up with a collective picture of uh, you know, the entire vision of long-term things that you want to do over. otherwise. So, you're your family and your wife was definitely an inclusive part of uh, of this all exercise and then you have sort of long-term, medium-term goals that are broken down into actionable plans, like perhaps monthly, weekly, and on a daily basis. And what's interesting for me to also learn is that you track your activities based on those goals on a daily basis. So it sounds like you almost have a journal where you you have several pages that you can go back, okay, what I was doing maybe 30 days back, that was uh, how it was correlated to my goals, which is, you know and and what's interesting is that as you fast forward several months or so it almost makes up a story is that whether you were on track or off track and things of that nature which is very very powerful actually Mm -hmm. that as you rightfully said that there are things in life whether it's social media or the other immediate problem or a ringing phone and things like that those emergencies that always you know pull us in all kinds of directions but Having that vision board right in front of your uh, office and a visual picture do, do you uh, do, uh, is, all, is a constant reminder that if where you're going, it's, it's almost a uh, sort of a lighthouse or a guiding post uh, of sorts, right? Absolutely. Awesome. Yes, that's and, and this vision board, do you also keep it in your bedroom as well, uh, uh, Scott? No,
2: we just have it in our office because uh, you know that's where we're up and awake. <laughs> so. Sure, sure,
1: sure, sure. sure. Okay. Awesome, yeah. awesome. And how how it has changed your uh, life? Meaning. Uh, I know a lot of people start, they are making, you know, like uh, half-baked efforts and things like that only to whittle away and things, uh, you know, kind of fall by the wayside. Uh, could you maybe give us some tangible examples of, uh, you know, how you were consistent uh, and how your vision board kept drawing you back uh, and kept you on track and what you are able to achieve uh, uh, as part of this exercise?
2: Sure, sure. I give you an example that, for instance, was last year. So we've always wanted to live on an island called Whidbey Island, which is where I'm currently living. And when we moved to Seattle about 20 years ago, we we fell in love with the place. But the island doesn't have much economy. It doesn't have, you know, it certainly wasn't supporting the kinds of high tech jobs that that we were a part of both me and my wife and so we 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 had a plan it's it We'd be Islands there, having a, a certain kind of home on the waterfront with a certain kind of view. There's a picture of that there, the whole deal. And then, so what we did was we we started the process of, for instance, looking for land. And I just built that home that's effectively, I mean, it's not a picture of the home because it didn't exist yet, but the idea of the home that was on that vision board, we built that last year. And seven years ago, we, we bought the land for it, even though we didn't even live on the island yet. But it's like, we knew we were going to do it. You know, we, we, We we, we were Mm -hmm. going to move there. And then four years ago, we moved to the island and said, okay, well, next step is move there. So we're going to move there. And I found a job that I could work remotely. So I actually specifically was looking for a job at a high tech company where four out of five days I could work from my home office, specifically, Mm -hmm. again, with the goal of living on that island and moving into that land, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and then after a few years, we got the process started on our home and uh, we built that last year. And now all that one particular little corner of our vision board is
1: all that's awesome that's awesome I, I mean uh it is so powerful actually uh, so scott you own um you know assets in several different sectors you know uh, single family multi-family you have medical offices retail you've done some uh, land uh, structuring land uh, deals as well um uh, describe like uh, why you have done i mean it's it's a it's an unbelievable effort on your part that you are opportunistic in very different areas. I think the challenge comes in is that not a lot of investors are always, uh, you know, educated enough to jump on those deals. And I'm impressed to see that you have such a a varied class of, uh, you know, investments uh, that you have made. Uh, Could you maybe share some tidbits about it that, why you kind of branched into all these different aspects and what was appealing about one sector versus the other uh, you know the leasing structure as we all know is quite different and uh, things like that things are evaluated differently based on a different sector could you maybe share some tidbits about that sure yeah it, in most cases it's not that i'm i'm
2: just in one class and there's this one Class one asset class that that meets my my goal. So I've always been open to the idea of of it not just being single family or not just being multifamily or something like that. Right. And really, it's it became a matter of learning what are the key parts that I need to look at when I'm looking at especially office and retail, because that is a different animal than multifamily, which is you know kind of like single family on steroids and I'm believe me, I'm you know, obviously, you know well. I'm <laughs> that's right. I, I'm generalizing it. i very. There's a lot. Right, of,
1: right, right, you know. right. But I, I get the whole idea that. But uh, yeah, but it's but it know, is you know so it's, it's, it's a different uh, animal in terms of you know how you would look at office versus retail versus you know like a single res a single or a multi-family residential side of thing. So go go ahead with your thought.
2: Yeah, so so I, I started a combination of things of educating myself, uh, literally starting reading, and then meeting people who actually had experience in office and retail, uh, even went to you know, training seminars on it where I could find it there actually frankly isn't much on it most of it's about you know about multifamily but that's understandable because there's a lot mm-hmm. of multifamily opportunities but uh, but there was some and uh, and really kind of like my first my first multifamily which was a 20 unit 29 unit and I just kind of jumped in mm-hmm. uh, learned a lot uh, and uh, you know both uh, I'd say all of it good meaning even the bad was good because I learned from it you know? yeah. but uh, uh, the initial ones, I just made sure that when I was looking at office or retail, I was really looking at a couple of different factors that are key for those that are not as key for uh, multifamily or sure. you know, if I was doing some singles. So things such as uh, looking at location and traffic count and, and parking and access and signage and uh, you know, what kind of tenant would be there next, if this tenant left, which you really don't look, you, you look at in multifamily, you, you think of the next tenant, but it's more at a demographic level. Sure, Whereas in office and retail, you've got to think what business almost by name would, would be interested to move here <laughs> and you know <laughs> exactly. if, if it became vacant and uh, it's a whole different thought process because it's very specific you know. You
1: Absolutely and, and you're open to the market as to you know what's happening around you as you rightfully said like the traffic counts what probably is some gentrification that may be around the blocks uh, and things like that so you're open to competition as well a lot of different forces. Uh, how about medical like how did that medical space come about? yeah well seeing the opportunity
2: in that you know that you you've probably frequently heard about about you know the the, the general population getting older which generally requires more medical uh, facilities also there's separate from that but you could say in some ways related but it is it is somewhat separate as well is there's a move of many large scale providers, so it might be an HMO, it may be a hospital, something like that, there's a move to actually distributing their offices. In other words, th- th- you still have the central areas where there are a lot of doctors and a lot of offices and a lot of different specialties. That still exists and it's not going away at the moment. But there also are a lot of facilities that are are becoming distributed and they're moving their services out to the, the people that they're serving. Mm-hmm. And- so small medical office is becoming a, a bigger opportunity from two two perspectives. Number one, the increasing number of people who need the services. Mm-hmm. And number two, there is an increasing opportunity for, for locations that are beyond what was normally you know, considered to be the, the central hub uh, around a big complex or something like that. So I I started looking for those opportunities of what... Uh, you know, where was their demand? Where was there a need? Where were there um, groups, small groups of doctors who were, who had their space completely filled and it looked like there, there needed to be some more. In other words, it was creating a small hub, not a major hub, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and started getting into it. And, and for the most part, it's been, it's been, uh, been really good. Just like anything with office and retail, the biggest thing you have to be prepared for is the potential, unless you're in some, great downtown location or something but the potential mm-hmm. for a longer vacancy than you might be used to if you're used to residential sure um, yeah so you know because you've got to find the right fit and when when and if a current tenant who might have a five-year lease i i have mm-hmm. you know one of my tenants has a 10-year lease that i just got mm-hmm. you know so it's great because they're very long term triple net leases and for those uh, who are listening who don't know what triple net is basically that's where it, the 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 tenant is actually responsible for the maintenance and paying things like property taxes and insurance and things like that. Sure. And so it's fairly low, low touch, but then what if they leave it can be very high touch cuz you got to really beat the bushes to to find somebody who happens to need a new medical office at that time in that location and that's not everybody you know? so right right
1: and, and for, for our listeners there's something called tenant improvement allowance tia as, as the term Uh, used in the commercial world is which is basically a landlord allowance for tenant to come in and landlord will, uh, you know, basically reimburse uh, some of that money uh, that what a tenant might be doing and goes back to, the story of what Scott is mentioning that finding similar tenants so that you can have perhaps lesser improvements uh, to be done from a turnover to turnover. So for example, someone is going from a medical facility, medical doctors to perhaps just a simple operation like a dental operation, perhaps, which is similar kind, but not like, you know, going from a, you know, from a, uh, medical to something like completely different, like a chiropractor or something like that, which will require a lot of reconfiguration, which brings in a lot of expense on the landlord's part. So it, it, with with that tenant improvement allowance in mind, uh, Scott, have you had to do some of that as well uh, in your office spaces uh, as well? I have, and it, it, it's depended. Uh, and what I mean by it depends
2: is I, in some cases, I've provided what I consider to be a good baseline. Mm-hmm. So, I've actually improved things that are perhaps more infrastructure related. So, one building, for instance, we put in an all new HVAC system, sure. you know, which you know, was good because it was getting end of life, it's my building, but it also helped them, you know, reduces uh, maintenance overall, reduces expenses, things like that. I repainted the exterior again, which doesn't in in, in actually change the interior, but mm-hmm. I did improve. I improved the parking lot, and I did all those kinds of things that were more external infra- infrastructure related, mm-hmm. and then they were responsible for whatever they wanted on the inside. So that was one model, mm-hmm. and then another model I did was I just gave them basically a good baseline of you know good uh, good flooring, meaning good you know commercial carpeting and 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 in good condition, but they they didn't pay quite as much rent. As if I had made a big contribution toward the TIs, where the tenant improvements—that was mm-hmm. another model I did—and then another time, uh, this this one was uh, I, I found was was interesting. Um, the 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 tenant was flexible, or they weren't sure how long they wanted to be in the building. Mm-hmm. And what I did was I used tenant improvements as an incentive, and mm-hmm. I said so. If I was so I said five years is kind of a standard minimum it, it can be certainly less it doesn't have to be but five years is, is frequently happens as, sure. a, as a, a lease and i said for every year above five years I'll give you X amount toward your tenant improvements. So, oh. mm-hmm. so I, I gave them an incentive, and the benefit to me was that I knew I'd. Ha- I mean, assuming they didn't you know, get abducted by aliens or something, they <laughs> that uh, you know, for I had a longer period of time for right. them to be there. And so they actually ended up signing a ten-year lease. And uh, you know, I put out a little bit more funds up front, but then I had more surety of having a good tenant there for a longer period of time and not having to look. For you know another follow-on tenant, uh, if they were to leave after the lease.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that uh, interesting story there. Uh, so, Scott, what is your uh, purchasing criteria like? So, when you buy these uh, different assets and things like that, what sort of metrics you're looking for? I'm sure it's it's slightly nuanced based on uh, you know like w- which sector you're looking at, uh, but. Uh, could you give us a rundown on uh, what sort of opportunities uh, numbers you look for in these sure uh,
2: before i hop on numbers if you don't mind I'll, I'll kind of start my my big criteria are two things mm-hmm. one of them is is not numerical but it's more market based so mm-hmm. i i'm i'm generally a secondary and really tertiary market kind of buyer uh, meaning sp- and for Anyone who hasn't heard those terms, it's basically smaller towns kind of thing, sure. but not too small. I mean, I do have a minimum population and also a minimum that I'm looking for in terms of population growth and things like that. Mm-hmm. So so I'm starting on local economic drivers, local population, what's in the pipeline, what's the potential competition, things like that. So things mm-hmm. that are real high level, but no, in some cases, I have turned down... Really, what on paper might look like really good deals, but I didn't see the long range uh, prospects there being. Necessary. Sure, the
1: market forecast just doesn't dive into vibrancy or the future uh, sort of vibrancy of the market and hence the deal in general, basically. Exactly. And the awesome. reason
2: that they were such a good deal was partly because of that. <laughs> you sure, know, sure. I, that know, I know, I you know. For somebody who's willing to take the risk. Right. Uh, of buying it, they could, you know, could do well. But it's, We've it's seen fine.
1: all those 12-cap and 14-cap deals, right?
2: <laughs> right, exactly, yeah, yeah, are, yeah if you find any of those, send them
1: my way, please. Right, <laughs> but, right, right. So uh, what about some cash-on-cash cash numbers and things of that nature?
2: Yeah, so that, I mean, it's kind of funny because it, it, has, it has changed recently uh, and, the only reason it's changed is because the market is, is a great time to be a seller. It's a tougher time to be a buyer. You still can be a buyer, (laughs) you know, but it is a tougher time. But as far as cash on cash, I'm I'm generally, generally looking for at least, like I'm generally looking for at least 10% to start, you know, not IRR, you know, not internal rate of return, but, but uh, you know, as far as cash on cash, Mm I'm usually looking for at least uh, you know at, at least an eight cap uh, mm-hmm. you know kind of property and then depending upon the financing that I can get I uh, I'm you know looking for at least a you know ten percent you know cash on cash it's hard to find those nowadays I'm finding them sure. but you know the, they're <laughs> it's getting harder and harder yeah you know, used to be a lot easier as for everybody you know five six seven years ago but um, and then and then my IRR that that's completely situation dependent you know is it a value add uh, is there is there an opportunity to add a lot of value most of the ones that i'm buying uh i'll then be able to build on that cash on cash return and uh and i'm looking for some kind of opportunity i don't buy places that are boarded up with nobody in them my, some people do and that's great and they they have the opportunity to actually make a, a, a they take a large risk, but they have an opportunity to make a lot of money. I take more of a risk-adjusted return approach, and I generally buy occupied properties that are under market rents and have some deferred maintenance. You know, right, that, that, right, right, No, and, I, I,
1: and as you referred there, Scott, is the, the vacants, the boarded up, or like significantly low occupancy uh, you know, prospect that come across come with such a huge uh, you know, risk in terms of compliance uh, you know all kinds of permits that you um, that may be needed uh, and it just throws in sort of that whole uncertainty in the project which i think uh, is is a big problem because you know you could get into a deal and not realize uh, you know what sort of improvements uh, are needed to you know, bring it. And especially if something is vacant, uh, I mean, I know around here that if something is vacant that you try to improve it, uh, they will, uh, you know, the county will require you to bring it up to the modern standards where you're adding, you know, sprinklers and fire resistant, um, uh, you know, barriers and things like that. And those are the normally quite a bit unanticipated costs that you do not foresee going in. And that's where I think a good deal can become a real problematic uh, uh, you know a deal to pull through basically and that's and you rightfully said that uh, if it's slightly unimproved uh, whether it's management or whether it's deferred maintenance and things like that we, we like those deals so that you know the upside is guaranteed through you know concrete actionable plan that you can implement so very well said there scott um. I know, Scott. We take advice. We surround with a lot of good people all the time. Uh, what were uh, sort of your mentors or good advice that you received over time uh, over the years?
2: Yeah. So initially, it would start out with people that I would get to know, network with at local RIA and you know, very meetups, things like that. And eventually over time, as I got to know people more and and the other way around, as people got to know me more, I really honed in on the ones that were of the most value to me. I, I now, well now that I'm, I'm, I'm further away now from, a, uh, from a, a, a metro area, from the Seattle metro, so I, I used to go to those kind of meetings more than I do now, now that I live on an island, but mm-hmm. I, still, I still try to, to get to those. and but I'm very selective. And and some of them I do go to that still have, you know, lots of beginners. I'm still interested to, you know, meet folks who are new and it's always interested to, you know, talk new concepts and stuff like that. And then on the other hand, I've honed down to just a select few that are really very, uh, in some cases, very experienced individuals, almost like the equivalent of a mastermind group, essentially Mm -hmm. Uh, one of them, my favorite one, for instance, and we meet on a periodic basis is it's not a meetup. It's not public. Nobody knows about it. You got to be invited, <laughs> you know, that sure. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the only way you get invited is, you know, you have a track record and knowing each other. Absolutely. I, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that. I, it's just, it, there's no, there's no speaker, there's no agenda. We literally just go around the table and talk about what we're doing. And I learn so much and I think mm-hmm. people learn from me as well. And it's right. Very right. Valuable. Yeah. So it's a, uh, you know, I mean, I've 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 done some, I've I've gone to some seminars and things like that, but uh, and they and some of them have been very valuable actually, especially when I was initially starting out. But uh, you know, now it's got more to people who are really doing it and uh, learning from them, and them learning from me. It's a two-way street. Sure.
1: Sure. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your time today, uh, Scott. Um, how can people uh, find you and uh, learn about what different things are happening within your company?
2: Sure. So uh, two ways you could go to my website, which is bonbolo.com. That's uh, um, B O N is in November V is in Victor. O L O.com. Or you can reach me directly at Scott S C O T T at bonvolo.com and either way uh the, the one you, you'll learn a little bit about what we're doing and what we're working on and the other one you can uh, contact me directly
1: that's awesome thank you for taking time uh scott Uh, listeners can gather more about Scott at his website and you are such a truly an inspiring example of someone who has learned so much and more importantly, done deals in various sectors, which is uh, very uncommon to see uh, that someone doing, uh, you know, so many deals in, especially in an early stage of career. So I want to, you know, applaud and congratulate you for that. Uh, So it's been, it's been a pleasure having you, Scott. Likewise. Uh, Sure, and listeners can also find a lot of good, valuable articles, statistics uh, at premiumcashflow.com. We also have a good podcast where we share YouTube videos with experts like Scott uh, and a lot of other uh, content is available on social media, whether it's uh, Facebook closed groups or whether it's on SoundCloud and things like that. Uh, So please head out to If you are interested in any investment opportunity that we may have. They are available for accredited investors only. Uh, Please drop us a line or uh, sign up on the mailing list. Uh, There is a tab on the website called Invest With Us. With that, you can register yourself and uh, learn more about the good opportunities and different sectors that we are working on so it's been a pleasure having you scott i look forward to exchanging more notes with you uh, and always uh, love the pleasure of the company with experienced guests like you so thank you for all your advice and uh, adding value to all our guests today
2: no oh, thank you very much sakar <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.